in the middle of my war. While I'm still in this valley full of shadows and my future's insecure, I cling to your promise. You vowed to always be near, that there's no depth I can reach, no darkness I could run into that you wouldn't follow right after me. Your love shouts louder than the waves as I wait in the belly of a whale. It cries over the roar of lions commanding them, be still. And with only a sling in hand while I face down my giant, as I stand before the king uninvited and defiant, I will fix my eyes on you. You so love this world that you sent your innocent child, not just to live, not just to die, but that all could be reconciled. And your son didn't wait until he conquered death to tell hell it had been extinguished. No, he declared from the cross that it is finished. So even if this battle has barely begun, I will rejoice because it's already been won. I am a child of the one true king, and in your name, I will overcome. Well, happy Easter, Compassion family. Man, I'm here at the lakeside at Henderson, and I'm really excited because for the very first time, we're having our all-online Easter service, and you're going to be a part of it, man. This is going to be an online celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, friends, you got to know the resurrection of Jesus is the one thing that separates Jesus and Christ's followers from every other religion in the world. You know, Jesus predicted three times in the book of Matthew that he would be arrested and killed that he would be buried, he would be in the grave for three days, and he would rise on the third day, not just any day, but on the third day. And friends, history and the New Testament tells us that is exactly what happened. So we're not celebrating a metaphorical resurrection today, and we're not celebrating a philosophical resurrection. We're celebrating a physical, historical resurrection that makes Jesus different from any other leader or any other man who has ever lived. Now, friends, you got to know there is more historic detail about the hours leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus than any other ancient event in ancient history. And a great bit of that has been provided to us by eyewitnesses in the New Testament. And man, we're really thankful for that. But let me just tell you, the most famous Roman historian, a man by the name of Tacitus, who was not a believer, he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus and his crucifixion back in the day. The most famous Jewish historian from back in Jesus' day, who also was not a believer, he wrote about the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. So really, since the very earliest days, you know, followers of Jesus have been gathering together on resurrection day, and then the pastor will say, Christ the Lord is risen today, and then everybody in the fellowship will say, he is risen indeed, just as an affirmation of this great core issue in our church and in our, in our faith. And so friends, uh, Compassion Christians in Georgia, in both Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia. Man, let's all make this historic declaration all together. I'll go first and then you respond. You ready for this? Christ the Lord has risen today. He has risen indeed. That's exactly right. Let's, wherever you are, let's praise the Lord. Come on, man, let's praise the Lord for this amazing, amazing resurrection. It changed everything. Now, friends, uh, I know it feels a little weird to, you know, participate like that online. I get it, but I just want to say thank you for throwing your heart in the ring, all right? Thank you for being a part of this service. Now, friends, we've been celebrating the resurrection this year online because of a global pandemic 
that literally has called a caused a dramatic season of social distancing that will hopefully save the lives of the most vulnerable people, people among us. Now, sadly, uh, there have already been 73,000 or more uh, COVID-19 deaths around the world. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, 10,000 in the U.S., over 10,000 this week, 220 in the state of Georgia, four deaths from COVID-19 in the communities where our campuses serve. Now, friends, honestly, what we're going through right now as a people kind of reminds me of the sequence of the passion of Jesus. I mean, think about Friday, the day that Jesus died. It was the worst day. Now, we call it Good Friday because he did more good for the world on that one day than anybody else ever has. But doing that good cost him his life. And then Saturday was the longest day. Man, Jesus' body was in a borrowed tomb. His disciples were hiding and grieving with absolutely no hope because not a single one of them actually believed that he would rise like he said he would. And then Sunday was the best day. And that was the day that Jesus fulfilled all his promises and proved that he had the power to rise from the dead. But friends, our world, we're living in Saturday. Most of our life, this pain, this grief is pretty often Saturday. But because of Jesus facing his worst day and his longest day, Man, we can face our worst days and our longest days with the knowledge that Jesus knows exactly how we feel and exactly what we're going through. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are and is yet without sin, which means that Jesus faced everything you will ever face, and he did not despair. Man, he didn't curse God. He didn't run away. He didn't sign off and smoke dope and crash his life. Friends, Jesus went through lower lows and harder, hard spots than any of us are ever going to face. And yet he stayed strong and he saved the world because he stayed close to God. So I just want to take a, a couple snapshots from that last week of the life of Jesus, his worst day and his longest day, so that we can all find the hope and victory that Jesus ensured for us on his best day. And I'm just going to walk you through the Easter story as we find it in the book of Matthew. So if you'll turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26 and just leave it open, uh, we're going to track Jesus through the Easter story all the way to chapter 28. All right, just hang in there. Now, friends, one of the greatest victories of Jesus was a victory over discouragement in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you know, after the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room in Jerusalem. They walked a mile, maybe a mile and a half out of the city, down through the Kidron Valley, back up on the other side on the Mount of Olives and finally arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus loved the Mount of Olives and he loved the Garden of Gethsemane. He spent every night on the Mount of Olives the last week of his life. It was what, you know, the Celtic believers call a thin place for him. You know, the Celtic believers believe as we do that, you know, God is near to us all the time, but it seems like he seems closer to us in some places than other. I don't know if that's a perception thing, but you know, sometimes maybe we perceive God more or maybe it's the place that triggers something in us. And I'll tell you, man, for Jesus, Gethsemane was one of those spots. And friends, on the night that Jesus was arrested, he wrestled discouragement to the ground in that special place. And it was a great victory for him. Jesus asked his 11 disciples, you know, Judas had already deserted them. He'd gone to the police to betray Jesus. But he asked the rest of the guys, man, go to Gethsemane and pray with me. Friends, Jesus already knew 
everything that we learned in our Anxious for Nothing series, and man, if you miss those messages, I would encourage you to go to our website and check them all out. But man, Jesus knew that when you're facing anxiety and discouragement, man, when you're worried about some big challenge or you feel like pressing in on you, prayer is the best thing and the first thing you should do. Man, when you're facing some big discouraging thing and, and you need victory, do what Jesus did. Pray and also ask people to pray for you. You know, I have one or two, I have two friends that texted me in the last week or so to tell me they got a family crisis going on in their family right now. A husband and a father-in-law are both in ICU at the hospital uh, with pneumonia. Uh, both are being tested for COVID-19. Uh, none of these families can visit with them even or much less stay with them in the hospital because of the risk of infection. But you know what they can do? They can pray and they can ask their friends to pray. Now, I want you to look at this. When Jesus was facing his darkest, darkest moment, look what he did. He prayed. He was the son of God, and yet he prayed for help. And he asked other people to pray with him and to pray for him. You know, Luke says that Jesus was so overwhelmed by the gravity of what was going on, you know, that night. And as he went to the cross the next day, that he literally sweat drops of blood. But then Matthew says in verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And yet, Lord, not what I will, but what you will. Now, friends, Jesus was in a terrible place. He'd been betrayed by one friend already. He had another, you know, the enemies were bearing down on him with wicked intent. And let me tell you, he didn't like it because he knew as soon as they got there, that crucifixion ordeal would begin. But if Jesus was going to be faithful to God, he couldn't run. And he couldn't quit, but he could pray. And let me tell you, some of us have been there. Some of us are there right now. Man, your spouse walks out and leaves you with three kids. Dude, if you're going to be faithful, you can't run. You can't quit, but you can pray. I mean, some of us have family members who are facing dire health issues right now. Listen, I have a friend. His mom is in a hospital in one state, and his wife is fighting for her health in this state. And let me tell you, I know this guy. He loves the Lord. He loves his family. He's not gonna, he is going to be faithful to God, and he's going to be faithful to his family. Will not run. Will not quit. But let me tell you, he is praying for power and peace and healing. Now, I hope you memorize the passage that we've been unpacking for the last few weeks because I'm telling you, this is where Jesus does the very thing that he taught, that Paul taught us to do. Jesus refuses to be anxious. You know, he don't give into that lingering long-term anxiety or depression or despair about anything. But man, let that be a trigger for your prayers. And then in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then what happens? Man, the peace of God that transcends all understanding begins to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, if you know this story, you know that Jesus was really struggling with what the next day would bring. And so he prays for God to provide another way. I mean, if there's any way other than the cross, Lord, let's do it that way. And you know how God answered that prayer? No. You know, sometimes God says yes, sometimes no. Sometimes he says uh, wait, sometimes he says grow. When Jesus asked if there's another way, let's do that, God said no. The only possible way that the sins of the world can be forgiven and the people of the world can be saved is if a sinless sacrifice lays down his life for their sins. And Jesus 
you're the only person in the world who could possibly, you're the only one who's qualified to do that. And so Matthew says, Jesus went away a second time and he prayed. He said, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to pass away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he got up from his prayers and he faced his enemies with peace and power. And listen, when his enemies got to the garden of Gethsemane, they didn't arrest some whining, weeping victim in that garden. No, man, they found Jesus waiting for them, ready to confront them, standing strong, even as a storm broke over him. And you know why that was possible? Because Jesus prayed the price for victory over discouragement in the garden of Gethsemane. And friends, he set us an example, you know, so that we can find our victory when we face overwhelming circumstances by praying the price as well. Now, friends, from there, Jesus showed us how to win another victory, and that was the victory over pain in the worst passages of life. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard this yet. But last week, uh, the 2020 Olympics that were supposed to be held in Tokyo in July were rescheduled. Uh, they pushed them back to July of 2021 because of this coronavirus thing. Now there's an American diver by the name of Laura Wilkinson, and she is a mother of four who lives in Houston, who's planning to compete for the gold medal in platform diving, and she is 42 years old. Now here's the amazing thing about Laura, she's already won a gold medal in platform diving in Sydney back 20 years ago, and let me tell you, that was an amazing story of endurance. Now, Laura had been practicing platform diving since she was a little girl, but when she was trying to qualify for the 2000 Olympics, she fell and broke her foot in three places, so nobody thought she had a chance to qualify for the Olympic team. But even though she missed seven weeks of training, man, Laura did not run, and she did not quit. She prayed, and man, she returned to practice diving with a cast on her foot. And even though her foot wasn't healing properly, she just endured the pain and pushed on. And she made it through the qualifying rounds and she was chosen to be on the U.S. Olympic team. But most people thought, you know what? She didn't have a chance of placing over maybe six or seven at this level, this level of competition. But I don't know if you watch those Olympics or not, but when she would go up on the platform, every time she got up to dive, her face would just break out in this big smile. And man, she would step up to the platform with confidence. But every time she was mumbling something, and nobody could figure out what she was mumbling. It's like she was trying to psych herself up for every dive. But you know, her attitude and her you know, presentation made her kind of a fan favorite of the Olympics back in 2000. But then in a, um, in a dramatic finish, Laura actually won the Olympic gold medal. And after her winning dive, man, a reporter ran over to her and said, Laura, everybody wants to know, what is it that you keep saying to yourself right before you dive? And she said these words. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, the one reason that we can all depend on Christ to give us the strength to carry on through any pain is because of the amazing victory that he won over the pain that he had to face. Now look at Matthew 26, 47. Let me see if I can find that again. Matthew 26, 47 says, Judas, one of the 12 arrived and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And so going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. And then the men, the temple guards, stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. 
Now, I bet every one of us has felt at some point in our life the sting of betrayal. You know, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Then a couple of hours later, one of his best friends, Peter, was going to deny even knowing him three times before the sun comes up. And then a few hours after that, when Jesus was on the cross, only one of the disciples, John, and then four women that loved Jesus were there with him at the cross as he faced the last hours of his life. Everybody else left. But friends, that hurricane of emotional pain is not all Jesus had to endure. Man, when the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and put him on a rigged trial, they condemned him and brought him to the Roman governor uh, for execution. Now, Pontius Pilate was just a political hack. But you know what I have to say for him? He tried five different times to get Jesus released when he came up for trial. He started first, first of all, he tried to drop the charges. But you know, the enemies of Jesus just shouted him down. They weren't having in that. And then, he's, then Pilate sent Jesus to King Herod, you know, who was a Jewish ruler, thinking maybe he gets some mercy there. Pilate sent him back, uh, Herod sent him back to Pilate. And then Pilate tried to reason with the mob. You know, what evil has he done? Why do you want me to kill him? Have you ever tried to reason with a mob? You ever tried to speak reason when you got a bunch of people ranting on Facebook or on social media? Dude, don't work so good. And then Pilate said, all right, I'm going to let you choose between a ruthless terrorist named Barabbas and Jesus. Because they had a tradition, you know, every year that at Passover, they would release one political prisoner and give them back to the Jewish people. And so Pilate thought, surely they're not going to pick this creep over this good man, Jesus. And yet they did. And finally, Pilate tried appeasement. He said, you know what? I'm going to have him beaten and just release him. And man, the crowd went nuts. They said, listen, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Man, they started making political threats. And all of a sudden it's like, you want to get reelected? You better play ball. And let me tell you, Pilate did. He just folded. Now, I want you to look at how Matthew describes what happens next. In chapter 27, we'll start reading in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. By the way, that was a lie. You cannot, get evade, you cannot evade responsibility by trying to just throw it off on other people or, or pretending it's not your deal. He's going to answer for what he did one day. But friends, he had Jesus flogged and then handed him over to be crucified. Now take a look at this. Uh, this is a cat of nine tails. This was the Romans' favorite torture weapon. Now this is kind of sanitized. We got this off the internet, I'm pretty sure. It doesn't have bone and metal, you know, sewn into these uh, whip ends so that when you hit a man across the back, it just slashes the meat off of him. But let me tell you, that's exactly what they used on Jesus. William Barclay says that sometimes a wayward blow would, you know, hit the victim's head and just unspeakable things was happening. I wouldn't even describe to you what used to happen sometimes. Some people, when they were being fly, would go insane because of the pain. Some men just died. They just expired from the flogging. But Matthew says, pretty simply, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And then the soldiers, they twisted together, you know, a crown of thorns and they just jammed it down on his head and the blood just began to flow. And then the soldiers would just punch him over and over again, mocking him. Hey, you're a prophet. Tell us who's hitting you. They had him blindfolded. They would punch. They would punch. You know, tell us who it is. You're, you're, you're so smart. Tell us over and over again. And finally, they put a purple robe on him. 
And they brought Jesus out before the crowd and they mocked and they said, look at your king, behold your king. And then they made him carry his cross as far as he could to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And that's where he was going to be crucified. Now, friends, Dr. William Edwards of the Mayo Clinic says the severe scourging, the intense pain and appreciable blood loss probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. He's almost in shock. Constantine von Tischendorf was a church historian, and he recorded some letters that Pontius Pilate was reportedly re reported to have written in which Pilate describes the crucifixion of Jesus. And he writes that the mother of Jesus was brought to Golgotha. And when she looked at the three crosses, just heartbroken, she asked, which one is Jesus? Which one is he? Can you imagine that? And yet, 800 years earlier, Isaiah had written a prophecy about the crucifixion of the Messiah. He said his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being. His form was just marred beyond human likeness. And yet, Isaiah goes on in the next chapter to describe the victory that the Messiah would win because he went through that pain. Listen to what he wrote. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. And by his wounds, we are all healed. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. For the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And friends, I'm telling you, as Jesus faithfully endured all the pain this world threw at him, he won another great victory that culminated in his victory over death on the cross. Now, friends, after Jesus was flogged, he carried his cross as far as he could, and then he just dropped. And man, the Romans just grabbed the guy out of the crowd. A guy's name was actually Simon of Cyrene. They grabbed him and said, you carry the cross the rest of the way, which he did. Now, friends, Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross for six hours. Look at what Matthew says about this in verse 45 of chapter 27. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, friends, at this moment, Jesus was at the apex of his suffering for us, but his mind was fixed on his father. And I know when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That sounds like, you know, kind of a cry of despair. But actually, that is a quote from Psalm 22.1. Man, Jesus is looking for strength in this time of suffering. And so he goes to God's word. And he starts quoting Psalm 22.1, which is a passage that was written by King David a thousand years earlier about the sacrificial death of the Messiah and how the Messiah would put his trust in the Father even in the midst of all of that, and then the Father would vindicate him. Now listen, between that cry out to the Lord and when Jesus would eventually give up his spirit and die, Jesus said six other things that show us that by fixing our mind on the Father, Man, no matter what we're going through, we can find hope and power and endure in the worst moments of life. Even on the cross, he locked eyes with his mom. He locked eyes with his best friend, John. And he said, John, take care of my mom. And history tells us that John did take care of Mary until she died in Ephesus many, many years later. 
from the cross, he was moved by the lostness of the very men who nailed him to the cross. And he asked God to have mercy on them. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. While he was hanging on the cross, he saw the spiritual need of one of the thieves who was dying beside him. And this man reached out to Jesus in faith and Jesus acknowledged his faith and said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Friends, Jesus thought about the ultimate sacrifice he was making as the fulfillment of the mission that God, you, the reason God sent him to earth in the first place. And he said from the cross, it is finished, which is a word that means I have paid the price. The debt is canceled. I have paid the price for the salvation, Lord, of people that I love and you love. And then his final words from the cross, they weren't angry. He wasn't cussing at God. He wasn't disappointed in God. His final words from the cross were trusting in God. And I mean trusting in God when you need to trust him the most. At the end of his life, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And friends, those are the last words of Jesus. Matthew says that when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And when he did, an earthquake shook all of that region, shook the city of Jerusalem. The veil in the Jewish temple was split from top to bottom. And friends, look at verse 54. When the Roman centurion who had nailed him to the cross and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely this was the son of God. Friends, I'm telling you, the way Jesus endured pain, the victorious way he died, caused people who are far from God to realize, you know what? He is God. He is the way. Which led to the next victory, and that was his victory over mortality in the tomb. Now, friends, have you ever thought about what happened on Friday night and then all day Saturday while Jesus was in the tomb? Look at Matthew 27, verse 57. It says, as evening approached, uh, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Now Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen and clean, clean linen cloth, <laughs> and then placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and then he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting right there opposite the tomb. Now, friends, this has got to be one of the most tender moments in the Easter story. Joseph of Arimathea, and John, John chapter 19 says he had a friend named Nicodemus, two wealthy men who had the ability to serve Jesus in this moment of need in a way that other people might not have had by leveraging their influence and their financial strength to get permission from the government to bury the body of Jesus. Now, you know, we learned that there are four women at the foot of the cross. I think they were all probably right there with Nicodemus and Joseph on Friday. And then they came back on Sunday, you know, morning to finish the embalming job. Now, I've actually made a joke about this in the past. But you know what? Do you know why the women came back on Sunday uh, to finish embalming Jesus after Joseph and Nicodemus had already started that process on Friday? It's because the women thought two guys will never get this right but I don't think that's necessarily accurate. You know, I, I believe the scripture says those ladies were right there with Joseph and Nicodemus on Friday, but they were all Jewish. And the Jewish Sabbath required them to get Jesus embalmed before sundown on Friday. And so I think they did everything they could, planning to come back after the Sabbath to finish embalming, you know, their friend and their Lord that they love so much. And of course that left them with a long, hard, sad, grief-filled, Saturday. 
Now, I've told you before, three times in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, 17, and 20, Jesus told his friends that he would rise on the third day. And that required him to spend at least part of Friday and Saturday and Sunday in the tomb. Now, the Apostle Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, which means that when life is absent from your body, you will be present with the Lord. Now, think about that. The moment your body dies, friend, your little candle does not go out and your existence does not end. And if you believe that, I'm telling you that is an escapist fairy tale. Not true. The moment your life ends, you will be standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus one minute after you die. So friends, it's not like Jesus' body was, you know, dormant in that tomb. His body and mind and spirit were all dormant in that tomb for three days. The moment, <laughs> nice catch, right? The moment Jesus breathed his last on the cross, man, he was immediately alert and aware in eternity outside of time and space as we understand cosmology, but alive and active in eternity. Friends, I'm telling you, when this physical body, when later on his physical body would be resurrected on the third day from our perspective, and then 40 days later, you know, he would ascend into heaven. But here's the bottom line on all of this for us. Jesus won a huge victory over mortality for all of us. And friends, you need to get this. Because I'm telling you, a lot is at stake. If the resurrection teaches us anything, it teaches us that death is not the end of life for any of us. Friends, Jesus demonstrated a truth that you need to embrace this Easter. You are an eternal being. You will never cease to exist. I'm telling you, the moment your eyes close on earth, your eyes are going to open in eternity somewhere. And friend, today is the best day for you to decide where your eyes are going to open one minute after you die and where you will be welcome. Now think of the hope that this offers to believers who are desperately sick today. I mean, just like Jesus, they don't want to face that hard Friday before them, but they can do so with no fear of that long Saturday because brother, they know where they will be. And they know who they will see one minute after they say like Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now friends, those three days in the tomb were super important. Not only did they fulfill, you know, what Jesus prophesied to his disciples over and over and over again. And dude, think about that. I mean, if Jesus predicted his death and exactly how many days it would be before he rose again, that's power. You do not want to mess with that guy. You do not want to ignore or dismiss or marginalize that guy. But friends, those days in the tomb remind us that eternal life begins the minute life leaves your body. And that's not just for Jesus. And that's not, that's not just for saved people. That's for everybody. And the good news is anybody who has put their faith in Christ will immediately be with the Lord in eternity the moment you die. That's the good news. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, not such good news. But you will never cease to exist. Which leads us to the final victory of Jesus. And that was a victory over sin in the resurrection. You know, on the third day when those four women came to the tomb of Jesus to finish embalming his body, they got a surprise. They did not expect what they found there. 
Dude, they saw a messenger from God. Look at what Matthew says in chapter 28, verse five. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him. Now friends, they did see him over and over and over again for the next 40 days. I mean, Mary Magdalene saw him outside the tomb. Two disciples spent two hours talking to him as they walked from Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus and had dinner with him that night. The 11 disciples all saw Jesus at one time in the upper room and on the Mount of Olives. They all had breakfast with him by the Sea of Galilee. James, his half-brother, saw him after he rose from the dead. And James only became a believer after he saw the resurrection of Christ, which makes perfect sense to me because, I mean, think about it. What would your brother have to do to prove to you that he was the Messiah, right? I mean, it would take a miracle just like this, and that's what it took for James. Simon Peter had an encounter with Jesus after the resurrection that changed his life. It freed him from guilt. It filled him with courage. It changed him. He went from a coward who denied the Lord to a man who was as fearless as a lion. Saul of Tarsus saw Jesus on the road to Damascus 10 years later. And man, he gave his life to Christ and became Paul the apostle because he saw Jesus very much alive. And then Paul wrote that there were 500 people in Israel that all saw Jesus alive after the resurrection at one time, many of whom he said are still alive if you want to fact check this. Friends, these witnesses saw him. And then 10 of those 11 cowardly disciples, you know, who ran when he was arrested, 10 of the 11 died a martyr's death because they would not stop writing about the resurrection, preaching about the resurrection. But I'll tell you one thing they did not stop doing. They did not stop believing in the resurrection because they saw it. Now, let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Friends, Jesus faced the worst that life and death could throw at him and he rose from the dead for you. When are you gonna put your faith in this Jesus who just won victory after victory after victory for you? What are you waiting on? I'm telling you, most people who really struggle with putting their faith in Jesus do so for two reasons. Number one, you think you're not good enough yet. I mean, you know how sinful your life is. Everybody else knows too. And you think, man, I gotta clean things up, you know, before Jesus will accept me. And can I just tell you, that's crazy. It's just totally wrong. You know what that's like? That's like if you just had a raging, life-threatening case of COVID-19, and then somebody told you, we found a cure. We got a medicine that won't cure it. Let me give you this shot. And you go, no, I gotta get better first before I take the medicine. Dude, that's crazy. You can't get better without the medicine. Jesus is the medicine that you need. You cannot get better without him. You've tried, didn't work. You can't get better without him. Other people I think struggle. They struggle to give their lives to Jesus because they don't have all their questions answered yet. They just don't have all their questions answered yet. My friend, do you think the people who saw Jesus the day after he rose from the dead had all their questions answered. Do you think they had all their answers? No. Listen, man, I've been following Jesus for 50 years and I still don't have all my answers, but I do have one. 
Jesus said that he would rise, he would die and rise from the dead on the third day, and history said he pulled it off. And friend, if you believe that, you know enough right now to humble yourself and give your life to Christ. You'll figure everything else out as you grow. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Why don't you put your faith in the risen Jesus today? Let this Easter be a day of victory for your life. Dude, go to the chat right now and tell somebody, I want to give my life to Christ. We've led people to Christ on the chat over and over and over again. And then we'll arrange for you to declare your faith through baptism just as soon as possible. But man, what are you waiting for? Jesus rose from the dead. It's history. Put your faith in him. Father, I just pray that as people think about this message today, that there will be those who will make a life-changing decision. They are one decision away from eternal life right now. They don't have it right now, but they are one decision away. And I just pray in Jesus' name that there are people who have heard this message, who will humble themselves and open their heart and their mind to you, Lord, and put their faith in the Jesus who rose from the dead so that he can save them. And I pray, God, they will do it today and then every Easter from now until you return, they will think this was the day that I put my faith in the only one who could save me. And I pray, God, it will be a day of joy for them forever. This is our prayer in Jesus' strong name. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Have a happy Easter. Hey, you know, I was the guy Cam was talking about. I was the guy who couldn't really trust God. I was the guy who didn't have all the answers. And there came a point when I stepped into a relationship with him, even without all my answers answered. My, has my life been better the whole time? Has everything worked out? No, but my life has changed and my legacy has changed. Today as we end, I wanna ask you two questions and then I wanna challenge you. What is the hardest thing that God has ever helped you through and how did he help you get through it? And then I want you to ask yourself, what did you learn? Listen, if you're struggling, we want you to know that we're here for you. If you need to talk to someone about a decision you've made in your heart, we wanna to talk to you. If you need someone to pray with, we wanna pray with you. We have a team of people that are ready to connect with you, so just click on the prayer button for any need that you might have. I wanna thank you for celebrating Easter with us and with thousands of people in their homes all over the world. And while I'm sure most of us would rather have been together today, I wanna to remind you of this. When the church began, you couldn't go to church. You were the church. The church wasn't a location because there wasn't one. The church wasn't about style or ritual. There weren't any. The mission of the church was to do one thing, to create followers of Jesus. And from that Easter, that very first Easter until now, the church has been made up of people like you and me who give and serve and invite and cheer when someone is baptized. People who've realized that when you, you go into your home or, or you gather around a screen, you are the church. The church began as a movement and it's still moving today. And by God's grace, we're going to be part of that movement. We will be the church in these uncertain times. The story is continuing to be told through your lives today. And so be the church, wherever you're planted, be the church for our generation. 
Thank you for celebrating Easter with us. And we hope that you'll join us next week as God continues to write the story of the church.